Well, housing affordability, certainly one of the very hot topics being discussed on the campaign trail. Different promises from the different federal leaders. Uh, It will be discussed more today as well. And if you look at the numbers and some of the polls that have been released, whether it's Main Street, Nanos, Angus Reid Institute, Leger, David Aiken, our political uh, chief political journalist, has been kind of crunching those numbers and looking at a possibility of a liberal minority. So really, nothing much different than what it looked like when this election was called. Well, let's check in with David Aiken now, find out where he is and how things are going on the campaign trail. Hey, David, good to have you back on the program. Good morning, Jill. Let's talk about what you've been doing on the campaign trail. I know you've been with the Federal New Democrats. How has that been? Yeah, so this week with uh, Jagmeet Singh and his tour, last week with Justin Trudeau and his tour, uh, we just came out of southern Ontario where there's a heat wave, 32, 33 degrees. I mean, that's what it says on the thermometer, but it feels hotter. Uh, in Winnipeg today, that's where that's where I'm talking to you from. Um, Jagmeet Singh's running a good campaign, and it shows in the polls, um, <clears throat> depending on the region of the country, you know, he's in the uh, in the national horse race number. He's in the low 20s, which is pretty good for the NDP. In B.C., depending on which pollster you take a look at, the NDP is in the lead. It's a, it's usually, and it always is, a sort of a three-way race in B.C. So the Conservatives, the Liberals, and New Democrats usually all sort of tied. Some polls have the Conservatives a bit ahead. I think one or two have the New Democrats ahead. But the point is, you know, Jagmeet Singh's definitely in the game. And one of the things, of course, now that starts to happen is as we look at the polls, you know, we're a third of the way through, you know, it, it's looking like a minority government again, which is just what we had. Now, we know that the NDP worked with, uh, supported the Liberals on confidence vote, and uh, the NDP extracted concessions from the Liberals in in exchange for that support. And now people are wondering, uh, I was wondering yesterday, okay, uh, you, Jagmeet Singh ruled out working with Andrew Scheer in 2019. What about Aaron O'Toole? And the, the answer is, he's been asked this a few times uh, over the last two days, and his answer is, you know, I'm running to be prime minister. I want to form the government. He really won't say one way or the other. But that's different than 2019 when he ruled out working with Sheer. And, you know, the, the uh, I talked to a lot of people sort of in the NDP orbit yesterday. And the sense is that, you know, if O'Toole forms a minority, the NDP would look at things issue by issue. And the interesting thing about the conservatives this time is they're putting out a platform that is really worker friendly. I mean, earlier this week, they talked about uh, making it a rule that federally regulated companies would have to have a workers representative on the board of directors with, you know, same level of same powers as any other director. Uh, they talked about putting employees ahead of, you know, higher up in the line if a company ever goes bankrupt so that employees can access their pension. You're going to hear, I think, Aaron O'Toole have another announcement today where he's talking about um, workers. So that's the conservatives. And the NDP are taking note of this, and I think this would open up um, you know, some space for a Jagmeet Singh and Aaron O'Toole to possibly do some deals, should it ever come to that in a future parliament. It's, it's an interesting dynamic, and like you said, such a change from what we saw last time. And I always love the answer, no matter what numbers they have in the polls. The leader always says he or she is running to be yeah. the prime minister, the leader. I guess that they have to say that. Um, but what do you think? You caused, have to say that yeah. exactly. <laughs> what do you think caused the shift, or why is it different to support Aaron O'Toole so different than before? Like you said, saying he wouldn't support Andrew Shear. 
Yeah, so there's a couple of reasons. First of all, Aaron O'Toole is very different from Andrew Shear. And um, as Canadians get to, you know, see Aaron O'Toole and understand him, first of all, O'Toole's been running around the country uh, during his leadership race and, and in this election, you know, noting that he's the son of a GM worker, a General Motors worker on, you know, an auto plant in Ontario. There, there's one thing. So he's trying to stress his blue-collar roots, even though he did spend time as a Bay Street lawyer. Um, that That's fair enough. Um, Aaron O'Toole is pro-choice, uh, which Andrew Shear was not. And that is important for progressive voters who really don't uh, don't want to vote for, by and large, don't want to vote for someone who would like to restrict abortion access rights. That's not Aaron O'Toole, even though certainly there are some in the Conservative Party who would like to do that. So that's that's one thing. So on, on the values issue, uh, or on, uh, that there may be, you know, reasonable grounds for discussions. And then the other issue too is Jagmeet Singh in 2019. Um, you know, he he didn't have a lot of political capital. Um, in 2019, it was his first election. He lost 15 of the uh, of MPs. He got his uh, his caucus cut down from 29. Lost 15 MPs, uh, which is a big chunk. So he didn't have the political capital really to tell his base, guys, we we can do stuff with the NDP the way Jack Layton used to do deals with Stephen Harper. But Layton had the political capital to sort of withstand those New Democrats who, no, 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 you can't do any deals with conservatives. This time around, Jagmeet Singh's got more political capital. I mentioned he's doing better in the polls. He's likely to win more seats. So all that combination of factors, more political capital for Jagmeet Singh, Aaron O'Toole is different than Andrew Scheer, and the conservatives putting a whole lot of policies in the window in a naked bid to win those blue-orange switchers, many of which live in B.C., Hmm, it is uh, interesting to look at that for sure. David, I wanted to quickly ask you as well, and if you don't have a ton of information on this, that's fine, but I wanted to ask you, uh, I know Jagmeet Singh has very pas- been very passionate talking about Afghanistan, Canada's role in, in helping people, mm-hmm. those evacuations. So we know now that Canada is done its part of the evacuations. Do you think that's going to come up again, or is that going to hurt Justin Trudeau? Oh, it's, it came up yesterday with Jagmeet Singh. It's come up, I think, just about every day with uh, Trudeau. Certainly did last week, and I know it did yesterday. And this has been a problem for the Liberals um, because uh, there is a sense uh, among a lot of uh, Canadians that um, that our government uh, did not do enough, was not well prepared for this, and is leaving those who were our allies essentially in Afghanistan uh, to the, uh, the the terrors of the Taliban. Um, Jagmeet Singh has been asked about this, certainly, and so has Aaron O'Toole. And they, Jagmeet Singh was yesterday said, you know, he doesn't want to start scoring political points, but he's really just wants, um, you know, that Canada to do right by its allies, and that's really the message from Aaron O'Toole as well. But I, I think again, it's this is really more a, a liability right now for uh, Trudeau uh, on the campaign trail. All right, David, we'll leave it there and watch for your reports. Thanks so much for joining us again. Okay, thanks, Jill. Cheers. All right, let's check in with the Vancouver Suns' Vaughn Palmer. Good morning to you. Jill, and let me just say, uh, give Abba another listen. (laughs) (laughs) All I was saying is I'm happy just listening to old Abba. I don't need new hologram Abba. That's all I meant. (laughs) Well, it's not just about money, 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 if I may quote an Abba lyric. Um, anyway, look, yeah, I, I find when they come on the radio, I, I would, ju- I always just get a little lift in my spirits because ABBA is so infectious and so upbeat. So if they can pull it off again, and I have my doubts like you, 
uh, well, more power to them. That is true. Very, very true. All right, let's uh, find out what uh, we're talking about today. Uh, sounds like, or looks like, with the numbers of people registering to get uh, their shots, that this idea of a vaccine certificate is working. Yeah, sticks work. We've seen it elsewhere. You know, uh, we spent a lot of time trying to persuade people to get vaccinated. They spent a lot of time offering some positive incentives and seen elsewhere that uh, for the for the people who just haven't gotten around to it, uh, for the people who still have questions, um, an incentive, uh, get vaccinated so you'll be able to get access to all these, you know, services and events and hockey games and all sorts of things, uh, pubs and nightclubs and everything. Uh, an incentive to do that, get get yourself vaccinated so you can get a vaccine card, so you can get access. It does work. And I think we've seen initially uh, fairly encouraging reports, uh, a surge in registrations. Um, you still have to make it convenient for people. They still have to answer questions from the people who are genuinely hesitant and genuinely have questions. But I also think you're seeing that, hey, uh, there's a deadline looming. Uh, September the 13th is the first deadline. Uh, October 24th is the second deadline. Um, You're going to have to get this done if you want that access. And I think you're starting to see the payoff uh, for the government, which is, yeah, it works. People are signing up. Uh, There's been a surge in registrations, a surge in vaccinations. And as long as they follow it up with lots of access, lots of clinics, I think they're going to get closer to the goal. Still, what? More than 700,000 British Columbians not vaccinated, even with a recent surge. Yeah. Do you think there's going to be any pushback, or what are you hearing as far as pushback? Yeah, we're seeing some... Pu- yeah, I think there is some pushback. And and one of the reasons, look, I've been critical of the government for, for how slow they've been on this file, but I think one of the reasons for hesitation was they wanted to be able to say they tried everything else before they move to a a bit of a stick uh, approach, coercion, disincentives to stay unvaccinated. Uh, And yes, we're seeing some pushback. Uh, We've seen, uh, and I see there's been a fair amount of action on social media on this. Businesses saying, well, we're not going to enforce this mask mandate and we're not going to demand this stuff from our customers. It's an interesting strategy to me. I, I really question the wisdom of that as a business decision because, yes, the people who were really dug in and really opposed to masks and maybe also opposed to vaccinations uh, may patronize your business, but most British Columbians are vaccinated and most British Columbians support uh, incentives to get vaccination and weigh masks. So you're kind of marginalizing yourself. Uh, I think there's lots of people out there like me who... uh, If a business is making a big show of, hey, we're not going to make people uh, get masked up and we're not going to check their vaccine cards, uh, I'm not going near that business. And I think, uh, you know, I'm not alone in that. I think, again, if you look at the numbers, uh, it's a strange business decision. You're really marginalizing yourself just to pander to the, the real profound skeptics out of there with their backs up. Yeah, it is, especially like you say, when you look at the numbers and where we're at with people, there are far more people vaccinated than not at this point. What about the numbers? We're starting to get more information breaking down the hospitalizations, people who are partially or fully vaccinated. Yeah, so there there are, I mean, we haven't had these kind of numbers up to date, so we're only getting them this week really for the first time. And they're they're showing something we were told to expect, that as the number of British Columbians 
who were vaccinated or at least had their first dose, so they haven't got the second, so they're considered under-vaccinated. As those numbers rose, the pool of people who, it's a small number in terms of percentages, but the pool of people who are still vulnerable because of pre-existing conditions or because of their age or because they're in in the small group who can still get COVID-19, even if they're vaccinated, that number would rise. And we're seeing that. It's still a very small number of people in absolute terms in British Columbia, but it's starting to rise. Well, 20% uh, some of the new cases now, and it depends on which set of numbers you look at, uh, are um, people who are vaccinated or people who are under-vaccinated, just the first dose. So, you know, we're told to expect this, and if you look at it, we don't, we aren't getting, Jill, the breakdown of how many of these are people with pre-existing conditions in the vulnerable group. It's on the rise. The thing not to lose sight of on this is that overwhelmingly, your risk of getting COVID-19, your risk of being uh, one of these long haulers where the effects don't go away, your risk of being hospitalized, and your risk of going into the ICU, all of that is much greater if you're not vaccinated. So that's still the situation. There's still much less risk of getting COVID-19 if you're vaccinated. And the risk of getting COVID-19 is still much, much greater if you're under-vaccinated. So, but, you know, uh, yes, uh, the government, we talked about this this week, Jill, Uh, the government kind of rushed into this. Uh, The explanation on the rollout wasn't as clear as it might have been. And yes, of course, there are lingering questions. And I think that's the reason you've got Adrian Dix on this morning on your show is uh, he's going to be trying to communicate all this stuff because, as we know, some of it's complicated. Uh, Do you think people are surprised or or what kind of reaction did you have when we found out about the deaths? Was it 10 deaths that occurred in long-term care? This is an issue that I think needs more explanation. So in the middle of uh, one of the press conferences this week, I think it was Tuesday, Dr. Bonnie Henry Uh, in defending the need for a vaccination mandate in long-term care, said in passing, and it was just in passing, that 10 of the recent deaths in B.C., which is a lot, were in long-term care. And if you put that together with what they've said repeatedly about long-term care, which is virtually every resident of long-term care is vaccinated, you go... So how did COVID-19 get into those long-term care facilities? They didn't say, but I'm guessing it's staff or visitors who were probably not vaccinated. When they announced the restrictions on long-term care recently, Jill, they admitted they don't know how many staff in long-term care are still unvaccinated. They're They're compiling the data, but they don't have it yet. So I think there's still a question, and I I hear it from people who have relatives, aged parents, uh, friends in long-term care, which is how vulnerable are these facilities? Have we waited too long to begin compiling the data on staff and begin 
requiring people to get vaccinated. They are now required, but the full requirement doesn't kick in until October the 12th. The data from Dr. Bonnie Henry, what she said suggests people in long-term care are still getting COVID-19 and tragically, some of them are still dying. Well, we will talk more about that coming up. I wanted to quickly shift gears a little bit because there was a bit of news or no news, I suppose, not great news on the Massey Tunnel replacement. Yeah, I mean, we know that right at the outset of the federal campaign, the new Democrats came out. Again, it sounded like a rush job to me that they had finally decided on the replacement for the Massey Tunnel. It was going to be it was going to be another tunnel. It was budgeted at four point one five billion dollars they didn't release the business plan it wasn't ready to go yet and you know one was left going well why are you rushing it out the door well there's a federal election on and it's a good time to be asking the federal parties for money Uh, will you support it the conservatives jumped at it right away oh yeah sure we'll support that the federal new democrats jumped at it right away they'll support it Justin Trudeau was in Surrey yesterday and God asked the question and he said um we haven't made up our mind yet So if they were trolling for federal liberal money, um, they didn't get it. Uh, Trudeau is still on the fence on whether or not they're supporting um, uh, the Massey replacement and supporting in the sense of putting money into it. He said a while back that the money will be there, but that's not what he said yesterday. Um, The liberal federal member, uh, Carl Qualtro, from Delta was at the B.C. announcement, so I have to think it's a bit of a disappointment for her. I suppose, Jill, it's possible that uh, Trudeau didn't just want to toss it off in a press conference yesterday. He's maybe got a major event planned later. Mm -hmm. But um, in the middle of a federal campaign, the federal government is supposed to be in caretaker mode. The federal bureaucracy is not supposed to be vetting proposals and approving them. So um, if Trudeau is being honest when he says we haven't decided yet, Um, I guess they could make a political decision to turn around later in the campaign and put the money in there. But um, that's a bit of a disappointment, I have to think, for the New Democrats who were expecting uh, they would get all the federal parties lined up behind this thing uh, to help pay for what is going to be a very expensive project. All right. Uh, Vaughn, we'll leave it there. As always, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, since it was announced that British Columbians will have to have a vaccine certificate or passport to access several types of services, the numbers of people registering for vaccination has gone up. Joining me to talk about this is BC's Health Minister, Adrian Dix. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hey, good morning, Jill. Good morning. Uh, What are your thoughts on the numbers? Is that what you were hoping for when the announcement was made about the vaccine certificate? Well, we're always hoping for bookings and for vaccinations to go up, and they have really significantly uh, for first-dose vaccinations in particular over the last uh, couple of days. On Monday, we saw kind of a one-day and immediate effect, I think, 174% increase in registrations over the previous week, which is very significant. On Tuesday, compared to the previous Tuesday, a 200% increase in registration. So we've seen that increase and we saw the increase in the number of first dose immunizations, which is really important. Remember, about 83.5% of people have been immunized in BC as of, uh, as of uh, Tuesday night. 
and uh, that leaves us with 16.5%. So these these movements are really significant in terms of uh, reducing both the transmission of COVID-19, increasing our vaccination rates. And absolutely, that's what we want to see. I think it's a very significant part of the vaccine passport. But I'd also note to everybody that those people who are unvaccinated, given the Delta variant, are very vulnerable right now to COVID-19. So I think both of those play an important factor in this. Uh, the website to actually get the vaccination card, the certificate uh, on the government website, it, it says the secure website will be available for September 13th. Will people not be able to go on before that date and try and get that or do the, the work to get that card? Yes, and we'll be working on that and obviously making detailed announcements, helping people through it, doing a lot of uh, both education work and work around that in advance of it so that people are ready for the for September 13th. There are important uh, considerations, as you can imagine, privacy considerations of others. We want to make sure it's done as well as possible. And this is something that's going to involve uh, everybody in BC and lots of other, lots of, uh, lots of our businesses as well, of course. So we want to make sure it's done right. There are inevitably going to be some hiccups, but I think it's going to, I think in general, there's really strong support across BC for this initiative. And it's really important. People often say, well, the vaccination passport or not, but really those aren't the choices. In a time of vaccination, where we vaccinated 83% of people uh, and where transmission is largely amongst the unvaccinated. What we're trying to do is target our measures to those who are, who are unvaccinated, those who are at risk. And that means not doing what we did, say, in the circuit breaker in March, which is to stop indoor dining for 100% of people, but instead focus that in on the areas where we see transmission and so we can keep our businesses open. And also, of course, because everyone going to those businesses would be vaccinated, probably increase um, the amount of business people have. Uh, we are seeing some cases, though, in that information being released about people who are vaccinated or partially vaccinated still uh, ending up in hospital or still getting this virus. So what does that tell us then about people who are still vulnerable and the issues, particularly with the Delta variant? Well, what we've seen is uh, the the, uh, the vaccines are not 100% effective, so there are going to be cases. And as more and more people are vaccinated, of course, there's going to be people who do uh, get COVID-19 who are vaccinated. But what it tells us still is that the most vulnerable people, it's another good reason to get vaccinated, is that vulnerable people are at risk when the COVID-19 spreads. And so the more all of us can get vaccinated, the less at risk they are. There's been some discussion the last few days about people who can't get vaccinated, which is a tiny number of people. But the way we support that is for the rest of us to get vaccinated. The number of deaths still occurring in long-term care, it was released, I think, on Tuesday. Dr. Henry said that 10 of the recent deaths were seniors in long-term care. Are there any plans to move up the deadline for long-term care workers to get vaccinated? No, but we're doing two. So that's a two-step process. Uh, the initial step will be uh, regular tests um, for people who are not vaccinated, right? which is important, mm -hmm. plus some PPE requirements. And then the full requirement will be in place October 12th. And uh, that's a very significant date. Long-term care, I think, is different than just about everything we have. As you say, the risk to people living in long-term care are so great. And that's why you see... And that's been the focus of uh, what's sometimes called mandatory vaccination for us first, long-term care, 
and assisted living. We will be looking at other areas of healthcare as well. But I think what that tells us is that people continue to be vulnerable. Nothing like what, of course, we saw and you saw and everyone saw in uh, November and December and January prior to vaccination, where people in long-term care were extraordinarily vulnerable. And we saw um, a very high mortality uh, here uh, relative to other parts of B.C. Um, We've seen a dramatic reduction in that over time, but people are still um, at risk to COVID-19 because they have, most people in long-term care suffer from significant underlying health conditions. Right. So do you know at this point, or is the has the information been gathered then how many workers we're talking about who work in long-term care who haven't been vaccinated but will have to be before that deadline? There's a public health order on an individual basis that uh, has come into place, and so we'll have that information for you very soon in detail, in granular detail. In general, a very large number, of course, have. And uh, I think the number is about 42,000 long-term care workers across our system who've been vaccinated, which is a pretty high number in terms of long-term care. The vast majority of residents in long-term care, with relatively few exceptions, have also been vaccinated, and that had an enormous impact. But again, uh, not one, it's not 100% effective. What we've seen as well since uh, the vaccination program went into effect first in long-term care is that even those in general who, who uh, test positive and get COVID-19 have better outcomes. But all of that said, this is, a, this is the reason why we're proceeding with uh, mandatory vaccination and long-term care. And all of that that information will be there. I suspect what you'll see when you, get, when you release the granular information, Jill, is that it will reflect communities. We have some uh, communities that have higher levels of immunization than others. I live near Joy Skytrain Station, as you know, and uh, in Renfrew Collingwood, the overall rate of vaccination over 12 is 92.2%. And I think um, that, well, it may not be possible for every area of the province to get there. It shows it's possible to get there. We have a very high level of immunization, and it keeps going up day, day on today. And I think that uh, I, I see, think you'll see some of that reflected in long-term care or other, all sectors that the uh, the uh, percentage in the community will be reflective of what you see, and we've got to work everywhere to get that uh, number up. When we look at the cases, though, and, and I, I guess the, the phrase being used is breakthrough cases, people partially or, or fully vaccinated who are still getting the virus, are, are you keeping track of what vaccine people received, who's getting, who's getting infected still? Every uh, everybody's uh, all those records are in place, and uh, I think it's fair to say these are um, the Pfizer, the Moderna, the AstraZeneca, amongst the most successful vaccines in history. They're much more uh, they're more effective, for example, than the average year's flu vaccine in terms of suppressing illness and uh, and protecting people. So very successful, but all that information is kept. All of it is analyzed all the time. Um, by uh, the BC Centre for Disease Control and our teams to make sure that uh, people are safe. But these vaccines, all of them have proven to be extremely successful. The key challenge for us now um, is to reduce the amount of uh, COVID-19 being transmitted all over BC. And the best way to do that is what we've done the last couple of days, which is register more people to be vaccinated and vaccinate more people. All right. Uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix, thanks so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Hey, anytime. Take care, Jill. All right. You too. 
Let's take a look now at how the federal leaders are using social media during, <clears throat> excuse me, this election campaign. Jesse Miller is the founder of Mediated Reality, also a social media expert. Good morning to you. Good morning, Joe. What are your thoughts on the different types of social media and how the leaders are taking advantage of that? Well, we obviously will see uh, mainstream social media being used in any election, no matter where it is in the world. But the reality for Canadians is that we're all very segmented in how we absorb our social media. If you're a young person, you're more inclined to be on TikTok and Instagram. If you're an older demographic and you're not as uh, as comfortable with TikTok, you might be a heavier Facebook user. And uh, you know, it's very different than what we see in traditional pre or, you know pre social media elections, where you would see commercials on every Canadian station and these little snippets. Um, you get direct to the candidate. You get direct to the already elected uh, running for a re-election uh, MP. And uh, there's a lot that goes into trying to navigate what social media messaging will work in what platform and where it will backfire on another. And I, I guess there's they would study this as well before putting things out, because the idea would be you want somebody to vote for you. You want somebody to get this message and not just think, oh, that was a great fun little clip or a fun video. You want to sway them if they're undecided to actually cast their ballot for you. We, we would hope that. I mean, obviously, we saw with the door knockers with the Conservative Party, uh, you know, that even uh, just simple proofing of grammar and, and spelling is sometimes just not necessarily in the cards. But in the 2019 Canadian election, we saw uh, Green Leader, Leader Elizabeth May try and kind of dive into the TikTok fray, and it backfired horribly. It was not something that she was comfortable doing, even though she, she was having fun with it. But if you look at uh, Jagmeet Singh, Jagmeet Singh is an active TikTok user. He brings a lot of his personality to it in his everyday use, so it's not just trying to get votes during election cycle it's a place where he's engaging actively and he gets what needs to be done in that space to get that audience to understand he's not faking it uh, we saw of course uh, twitter labeling uh, a clip that was put out by christian freeland as manipulated uh, media we've seen some rather goofy uh, things put out uh, the conservative party putting out that rather strange spoof ad can you make a mistake or can it be hurtful to go ahead with a social media campaign so conservative politics, traditionally in the United States and now in Canada, really do thrive on the meme economy, the idea that you can uh, take something that somebody has said and manipulate it so that it will travel through social media very quickly. And the thing is, is that that, that commercial, the, the, the way it was done, was kind of, you know, not the best, in my opinion. But the reality of it is, is that there were people who loved it. And so the hard part here is it is about you as a social media consumer. And so uh, older Canadian voters who lean more conservative love the Facebook memes. They love the the smirchment of, of Justin Trudeau. They love when it's an emasculated commentary about him. And that's been ongoing even well before the election even was a consideration because during the pandemic lockdown, we saw a huge increase of specific targeting towards the prime minister that was really about this kind of divisive rhetoric that was reflective of American GOP politics. So when we think about some of these gaps, now Twitter itself, they did highlight that, yes, it was labeled for, you know, this mis misleading information, not necessarily misinformation, but the thing is, is that any manipulated media on, on Twitter can be flagged for that. So if you have a video that's, say, 30 seconds long and you edit, you splice it, and there is a different version available, Twitter will highlight that. It's not just for this instance. And so, yes, maybe the Liberals position that video so that it would get flagged, so it would cause more of a conversation, which in itself is just traditional fantastic politics. <laughs> right, right. People that maybe would never have clicked on it or seen it suddenly uh, want to see what it's all about. Exactly. Uh, I'll leave about a minute left. Do you think, does social media take the place of more traditional door knocking or does it help? Does it go hand in hand with it? 
it's 50-50 in my opinion. I mean, social media as, as a tool, we saw it really kind of kick off the 2008 American election and, and the Republican Party at the time was really far behind. They tried to catch up to the 2012. But if we look at Canadian elections in the past, let's say, six years, um, 2015, social media play, played a huge role for the Liberal Party in not only solidifying their government, but really engaging what it meant to take a selfie. And there is critique, obviously, in that, at that point. It's kind of played out. But as uh, as a voter myself, I'm not necessarily looking to see who's got the best social media game. I always kind of vote based on who I think is going to be best for my community, not necessarily the country as a whole. But if I think there's somebody on the East Coast of Canada when I'm on the West Coast who's got a really great social media platform, I'm definitely going to pay attention to them. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there. Jesse Miller, thank you. Thank you. We have been talking a lot about affordability. We've been talking about what's happening in Afghanistan, both issues that have been talked about on the campaign trail as well. What about things like mental health and harm reduction being a focus of this election? Well, let's bring in Guy Felicella, a harm reduction advocate and somebody who knows firsthand what it's like to overcome an addiction. Guy, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, do you think enough attention is being put on mental health, on harm reduction, on the opioid crisis? <laughs> no, not at all. I, I mean, I barely heard anything on any of the issues. I mean, I did hear the Conservative Party's platform on um, addressing, you know, more treatment beds for addiction, which is which is great. But however, it doesn't address the illicit drug supply and and then i also am concerned as well as that although they said that they wouldn't shut down any harm reduction services which i find that hard to believe but also uh, they didn't say that they would fund anymore uh, otherwise so um, i'm just very very skeptical and very worried of all the promises that i hear from federal leaders and really um it's good talk but absolutely no action and you can put a thousand treatment beds um, in any province, the challenge is how do you how do you have access to those treatment beds with a system that's already um, challenged and drained, um, waitlist, et cetera, um, the toxic drug supply. Um, it's very challenging to get people to that step. If we talk uh, about the number of beds only, uh, because you're right, we've heard the different promises about opening up more beds and having the treatment available. What is the biggest obstacle right now, do you think? Is it a lack of, of treatment beds available or is it, as you kind of touched on there, people not able to get access to services? It's a lot more complex than addressing just the addiction to drugs or somebody who has a substance use disorder. Um, you know, there's trauma, there's homelessness, where are you going to live after? What about uh, job skills? They don't teach that um, while you're going to treatment. They're basically focusing on trying to get you off the drugs. And, you know, they'll say, like, we want you to be a productive member of society. But honestly, once it's just like walking somebody to a cliff. And once you're done treatment, it's like, you know, here, uh, this is this is the end of the road. Jump. Here's your parachute. And basically, that's the, the same thing that happened to me consistently for for decades, I would do well in treatment, but as soon as I um, left, I just had a very hard time accessing other services, getting a job, getting housing, criminal record. I mean, we just don't make it easy on people to get out. So you can throw money at whatever you want to say you're going to throw it at. Unfortunately, it just it doesn't address the, the root causes. So what changed for you then? And what was it that was that turning point for you? Well, I mean, for, in my life, it was... Uh, you know, 
diagnosed with uh, ADHD and a comprehension disorder. That was the first time of awareness that, uh, you know, everybody kept pointing like, hey, his problems are the fact that he uses drugs. And there was a specialist that challenged that saying, I, actually, I don't think your problem is that you use drugs. I think there's, there's a reason why you use them the way that you do. And let's do some tests. And once I got those results, and then obviously my childhood trauma, which um, was was challenging as well, but then the trauma that was impacted through the foster care system, the healthcare system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it makes it extremely hard for somebody to break free. And once I had access actually to trauma therapy, which was free for a year um, in an outpatient program, which um, really benefited me. And, and now I still access that service today, except I have to pay for it. But it's something that I have to do for my mental health and my sobriety as well. So do you think if if it changed, and there have been some promises made on this front, making it so there is universal access, not something that would be linked to extended benefits with a job or something that only some people would have access to, if there was universal access to mental health and to addiction services, would that make a difference? I think it would make a huge difference. I think you have to have two things that we have to address. One, the illicit drug supply, which is provide um, options for a safer drug supply, which people can access kind of on demand. And we also need um, treatment on demand for people who struggle with the substance use disorder and where families um, don't have to pay, you know, $30,000 a month for them to, to go to a facility. I know some parents who have lost their children that are still paying off. They've lost their children to an overdose after they relapsed and they're still paying off the treatment fees. I mean, to me, that's just egregious. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's uh, hard to hard to uh, think what that would even be like for the parents. What do you think about getting people to pay attention to this? When we look at the response to the pandemic, the response to so many other things. Uh, at the same time, we're seeing people die of overdoses. We're seeing uh, we saw the numbers throughout the pandemic go much higher than they had been in the past, but it still doesn't seem to get anywhere near the same amount of attention. How do you think we change that? Well, I think people, you know, you can't just follow up with one question to a politician, what are you going to do about the toxic drug supply? Because they'll just tell you they're going to throw money at treatment beds or harm reduction. They don't, they don't talk about like addressing, well, what about the systemic barriers such as um, the root causes of our bad drug policy that are killing people? If you support, you know, I've heard uh, the prime minister talk about he supports safe supply. Um, well, I say if you do, then amend the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act so that people can actually start getting access to it and get it out of a, a prescriber model as well. Have both models, have one for prescribing for um, so that people can access it that way, but also have one where people can get it uh, through co-op models or compassion club models. It's kind of like going to the liquor store. You're not going to see a doctor to get a prescription for your bottle of wine. And if you do have a problem with alcohol, then you would go see a doctor for support and help. That's that's how basically we have to approach the illicit drug supply. Uh, do you see it happening then on a federal level? And, and I mean, there would be money, the transfers come from the federal government, but then the provinces deciding on how they're going to allot that or how they're going to spend that. Do you see it then that it's important that it's an election issue or should we be focused more on provincial governments and, and closer to, to home what's happening in the province? Well, I think in anything, um, you, you, you need an alliance with like all levels of government um, and not just just that. But it's interesting that if even if the federal government gives the provinces money to 
um, fund these services in areas, then you have municipalities that don't want those services in their areas either. So there's so many challenges. There just needs to, you know, we all need to get on the same page and say that it's egregious that six people um, die every day in the province of British Columbia. And it's egregious that 17 people die every day across Canada. Um, and we're not talking about that. Now, why is that? Like, is it, is it, if this were anything else, uh, if it was 17 people dying every day from COVID, I, I can guarantee you the urgency um, to lock this country down and, and change that would, would be quick and swift uh, just with this drug supply. It just keeps going on. And then to me, I just keep saying, well, how many deaths does it take? Like, what does it take for you to stop? And I can guarantee you, just like alcohol prohibition, uh, generations ahead of us, when you know, future generations will look back and, and think, what, did this, what was this country thinking? Um, to allow that many people to die. All right. Well, Guy, we'll leave it there for today. Appreciate you coming on the program, though, to talk more about this. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. You too. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi this week. Well, of the federal party leaders have made a lot of promises when it comes to housing, and they've put forward some different ways they say they will make housing more affordable for Canadians. Things like banning foreign home buyers or bringing in more rules for foreign home buyers, stopping the practice of blind bidding for homes. Are these ideas that could actually work or make a difference? Well, let's bring in Dane Idol. He is founder and lead analyst of Idle Insights. Thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Jill. Good to be with you. Want to go through some of the promises or the ideas that have been put forward? Let's start with the idea of foreign buyers and foreign ownership, and a bit different depending on which party you're looking at. What are your thoughts then if we were to go to a model of banning it altogether? Right. So here in Greater Vancouver, the foreign buyers uh, were actually less than 1% during 2020. So after the 2016 or 2015 foreign buyers introduction by the Liberal government and an extension by the NDP government, it really has worn the numbers down. So the foreign buyers are really not impacting these price increases over the last 12 to 16 months here in Greater Vancouver. It has uh, subtracted from 3% during 2017 to all the way below 1% in 2020. So they're really not, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean. It's a good headline and it you know, rallies uh, sellers or, or sorry, buyers to think that everybody purchasing a home is a foreign buyer when simply it's just not the truth. Do you think there, it makes any difference that we have the Liberal plan saying that they would ban uh, foreign ownership or foreign buyers for two years? I think the Conservative plan looks at that but leaves the door open as far as parents perhaps buying housing for their children if they're attending school? Right. So, uh, again, real estate is ultimately local. My personal belief is national government should stay out of the real estate market. If they really did, I mean, Trudeau was elected in 2015 with promises for um, entry-level housing, more houses that were going to be affordable. That kind of held here in Greater Vancouver when he came into power. The average sale price was right around 1.57, and during July, it was still right around 1.602. So prices had remained stable over that period of time. My belief it wasn't a national impact. It was more local factors again. There was, after a torrid increase in prices, markets cannot continually to run uphill. Eventually, they do have to settle. So that was a natural occurrence. And if national governments, Trudeau especially, really did want um, prices to not increase like they have, they wanted to maybe have bailed out the secondary mortgage markets to the tune of $8.3 billion during 2020, and then you would have probably not seen such a market escalation. 
And even on that, um, it, it wasn't the historical market leaders that really accelerated during this recent phase. It was the outlying market, the secondary market, the tertiary markets. So any market in Greater Vancouver that was below a million is no longer. So we had, um, just for a couple of examples, Maple Ridge was at 984,000. It went up well over 30%. Pitt Meadows, or sorry, yeah, Pitt Meadows was up 45%. Abbotsford up 46%. And Surrey was actually up 51% from uh, March of 2020 till April of 2021. Average sale price went from 987000 all the way up to $1.5 million. So it really it was a lot of uh, local British Columbians, Canadians that were moving out because of the pandemic. There's a desire and a, and, and a need for more detached housing, building more condos isn't really going to solve that. So my you know, thoughts would be for the municipal governments or the municipalities, the cities, to change some of the zoning, allow for the skinny lots to be built once again like we did earlier on, so that there is more affordable housing that are actually detached rather than just trying to push every family into condos. Uh, let's look at the promises as well over supply and building. And again, it's an election campaign and everybody is trying to get to put these out there to get the vote. So the Liberals saying uh, they would build, preserve or repair 1.4 million homes in a four year period to increase supply. Conservatives are saying they'll build 1 million new homes in three years, but aren't really saying how that would be funded. Uh, the New Democrats saying they would build 500,000 new homes over 10 years uh, with an initial funding commitment of $5 billion. But again, not a lot of details. What are your thoughts on these promises about building new supply? Uh, They're they're great headlines, but uh, the the matter is void. Um, So like you say, they don't really give any explanation as how they're going to do it. The private market roughly would do 200,000 over that period of time. Uh, Government is not usually as efficient as private market would be. So that was is leads back to my earlier thought of allowing for some subdivisions or for some um, new or rezoning of areas around parks, especially, so that you can use up the square footage of the building land, and then have the family go off to the park. Um, and again, putting it back in the private sector hands is is more efficient always than leaving it up to the governments. Governments overpromise and continually underdeliver. Yeah, I think I think you're right. It's all about the headline and putting stuff out there that sounds really good. Uh, one Absolutely. Of, and, oh, sorry, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I, I was just going to say the inventory is really the crux of the matter here, especially in the detached market. Over the last two years, uh, we were not able to overcome the 5,000 mark, save for one month here in this year. Uh, we we're in April, I believe it was. It was just at 5,018 active listings in the detached market. And that was the highest over the past two years. Historically, we've never had a year where we did not exceed 5,000, 6,000 active listings during the peak of a given year. With some of these foreign buyer bans being the headlines that they are, you may see some inventory increase here. But again, with a, you know, the fourth or fifth wave, this Delta variant, it's not too appetizing to have strangers come through your home during a pandemic. So, you know, the older generations may continue to hold off listing their properties, which, of course, hurts inventory. And then it goes to the old supply-demand factors. There is demand, and if there's no supply, prices will increase. Overall, I do expect this market to fall off on its own trajectory. We're calling for between an 8 and a 13% correction on its own volition. It used to be everything was market-driven, and now it's really everything is an external factor. There's government's involvement, uh, pandemics, and on and on. So it's really not some market-driven factors anymore. It's a lot of externals.
And one other question I wanted to ask you about this idea of a home buyer's bill of rights and the idea of getting rid of blind bidding, which to me seems strange because it's somebody who's selling your own personal property and you'd think you'd be able to to try and get whatever price you want for it. But what are your thoughts on calls to end blind bidding? You know, it is an interesting topic because, of course, sellers want the highest price. Um, but during this phase of multiple offers, there would be, you know, three or four offers that were very similar. And one buyer that would blow everybody out of the water by multiple hundred thousand dollars. So that becomes the new average, the new comparable in a market. Um, is it good or bad? That is a debate. At the very least, it would be more transparent. If you just continued to go up in $10,000 tranches, the seller likely wouldn't get the ultimate win that they have in the past. However, buyers would be aware of who they're competing against. Go up in $10,000 tranches, 25000 if there's still a lot, and you'll eventually go down to two. And it, it's the same way they sell classic cars. Uh, transparency in this market probably wouldn't be a worse thing. All right, Dane Idol, thanks so much for joining us to go through some of these promises that we've been hearing during the campaign. Appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Jill. Enjoy.